0: Hello, you're listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is Session 8 of This Means War, a new weekly podcast series on Bible battles that symbolize contemporary situations. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma, for over 40 years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. In this eighth episode, we will take a bit different viewpoint of the familiar battle that David fought with the Philistine giant Goliath for the symbolism it holds for modern Christians faced with fighting evil. Then we'll see how other Old and New Testament verses support that symbolism. So come with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. And Israel is now a monarchy. They are under the rule of the first king, Saul, of the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill, and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So if you've seen a map, you may remember that the Dead Sea is in the land of Israel. Well, this is just to the west of the Dead Sea between two small towns, Azekah and Soko, and just to the east of the Philistine territory, which bordered the Mediterranean Sea. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span, which is believed to have been more than nine feet tall. Maybe he had a pituitary tumor that caused him to produce too much growth hormone. I don't believe there's anyone recorded living on Earth today that is that tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing five thousand shekels. That's about 125 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That's 15 pounds. Well, some people would have trouble bowling with a 15-pound ball. Can you imagine having a spear point that's 15 pounds? And you've got a hold of the spear several feet back on the wooden part of the rod and you're trying to hold up something that weighs 15 pounds that far out. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Those are the first two of 12 questions in this passage that I'd like to focus on. So keep watching for questions. Again, why do you come out and line up for battle? And am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, You will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Maybe you recall that Jesse was the grandson of Ruth of Moab. Remember the book of Ruth? Ruth lived during the time of the judges, and she married Boaz, and they had a son whose name was Obed. And then Obed had a son whose name was Jesse. And Jesse had eight sons. The youngest was this David. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shama. And while we're on the subject of his other sons, if you go back to 1 Samuel 16, you read the account of the prophet Samuel being sent to Jesse's house because there was someone there that was to be anointed to be the next king of Israel. God had rejected Saul and his dynasty because Saul was disobedient, and Samuel wasn't certain which boy it was going to be, but he knew he was supposed to go to Jesse's house. So when some of the boys came before Samuel and he saw Eliab, the firstborn, he thought to himself, well, I know which way this is going to go. It's got to be him. He was fine looking and he was tall. And the Lord spoke to Samuel's heart and said, don't look on his fine appearance. I have rejected him. And so one by one, the seven of the eight sons who happened to be home at the time were presented to Samuel and none of them was the one that God had chosen to be the next king. And by the way, this was all being done kind of on the sly because, Of course, it would have been considered treason for Samuel to do this if Saul had found out about it. After the seven oldest sons had been presented, Samuel said, Well, do you have any other boys? It's none of these. And Jesse said, Well, the youngest is out keeping the sheep. So they sent for David, and when David came in, Samuel knew that was the one, and he poured oil on David's head and anointed him. But this was not public knowledge. So we continue in 1 Samuel 17. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And you may remember, too, that at some point, Saul began to descend into what appears to be mental illness, and he would get very riled up and upset. They knew that this boy David was an excellent musician, and they would bring him in, and he would play... And his music would soothe Saul. But Saul was apparently not really aware of his background. But we continue. For forty days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are, and bring back some assurance from them. They were with Saul and all the men of Israel in the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up, and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. So... If this has been going on for 40 days, that's nearly six weeks of every single day a standoff. This frightening giant of a man, a known champion, comes out and defies the Lord and thunders at the people and asks them to send someone out, and they just quake in their boots and cannot respond. In the Bible, the number 40 is significant, and it symbolizes a time of testing in many cases. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from the lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now here comes another question. Remember, we're supposed to be looking for questions. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see... How this man keeps coming out, he comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. So that's quite the incentive, wouldn't you say? Make you wealthy and give you the king's daughter for marriage? That would automatically come with a lot of power and prestige. And tax exemption for life? Wow. But here we go with more questions. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him, and asked, and here we go with two more questions, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. So something about David, maybe jealousy because he had been anointed by Samuel, absolutely burned up this oldest brother, Eliab. And remember, We already have record in chapter 16 that God has said to Samuel, I have rejected him, but he is not happy with David. More questions. Now what have I done, said David, can't I even speak? So he's resisting this opposition. He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You aren't able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, And rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, And the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he wasn't used to them. I can't go in these, he said to Saul because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with the shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. And don't you know that your enemy despises you today? Satan and his evil forces hate the people of God and what they would accomplish for the kingdom of God? He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? There was another question. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of Of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know That it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Don't you love that he is assertive and that he is taking the lead on this and running toward him, not merely defending himself? Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with a sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. And that was to the west of where they were. Their dead were strewn along the Sha'arim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. You get this picture of complete and total victory? Not only is the giant dead, but his head is cut off, and it's being carried around like a trophy. And his weapons are now a part of the property of David himself and his fellow soldiers have also been completely destroyed and maybe the ones that did get away are on the run. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Here we go with another question. Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. What a story. And in some ways, what a very familiar story. This is used in Sunday school classes for three-year-olds. But there's something so very wonderfully layered about it, with its symbolism for us. And you think about the enemies that we face and fight today. Discouragement, depression, illness, opposition to Christian ideals and the Word of God. These giants need to be destroyed, and they can be according to the same formula that we see in the story. But these important 12 questions that I was referring to earlier, can actually be divided into four basic categories, and we ought to be asking them of ourselves. They are the identification of the enemy, and the identification of the church, and the motive of the church as we go to battle, and the opposition of the backslidden church. And so we begin with the ID of the enemy. The four questions that have to do with Goliath's identity that were asked in this passage are, first of all, from Goliath himself, am I not a Philistine? And then from the Israelite soldiers, do you see how this man keeps coming out? In other words, do you see how he operates and what he is like? And then David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? In other words, this one who is not a part of the people of God, that he should defy the armies of the living God. And then finally, Goliath himself asked, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? So remember again Goliath's advantages. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet His armor weighed about 125 pounds. He had bronze leg covers. He had a sword and a javelin and a spear that had a 15-pound iron head and a shield-bearer, a kid whose job it was to hold the shield who ran before him. Pretty high, pretty formidable, and yet not enough to defeat the people of God. That reminds me of Ephesians 6.12. Paul said, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You know, we're talking about understanding the identity of the enemy here. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In the King James, it says, In the high places, I bet Goliath seemed pretty high when David looked up to see him. And these words, rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces, they speak of something pretty high and mighty. And yet we read in 1 John 4, 4, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So the identity of our enemy, our Goliath, is whatever he is, he is something less than almighty God. And therefore, he's already been defeated. Know your enemy and understand that while he may seem lofty and high and lifted up, formidable, difficult, almost impossible to conquer, if you can ever get a hold of the concept that he can never ever match the power and the might of Almighty God, then you know that you can have victory every time. That brings us to the questions in this passage that speak to the identity of the people of God in the story, or we can say, of the church. First, Goliath said when he was doing his original showdown with the military of Israel, aren't you the servants of Saul? Interesting, he called them servants of their king, Saul. And then later at the end, the same question was phrased twice. Saul said to his commander-in-chief, Abner, whose son is that young man? Referring to David. And then when David was brought to Saul, Saul said, whose son are you, young man? Remember what his answer to that was. He said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse. So he's referring to himself as a servant. And Goliath referred to the children of Israel as servants of Saul. And yes, we see that so very clearly in Scripture that God's people are servants. But he also says he's the son of Jesse. And remember, Jesse was the Ephrathite who was specifically designated by God to Samuel as the father of the young man that would become the next king. And that happened in chapter 16. So the implication is, I'm a servant and I am the next king. Servant and king, king and servant. And so we read in the New Testament Regarding the servant part of his identity, something Jesus said in Mark 10:42 to 45, "You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all." For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus Christ modeled this same he was a servant and yet he was king. The thing about servants is that they take orders from their commander. A servant doesn't decide whether or not he's going to fight the enemy. He is told a soldier waits for his sergeant or whoever's in control to say this is what we're going to do today and if that sergeant says jump he asks how high on the other hand kings have authority and they rule first peter 2 9 says referring to the people of god but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood not just a priesthood but somehow a royal priesthood, king and priest at the same time, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's also echoed twice in Revelation, Revelation 1-6, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Revelation 5:10 And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. That's what kings do, is it not? They reign. So is this a contradiction? Well, at first it seems to be. How can you be a servant and a king? How could David be a servant and a king? And how do those work together? Well, if we are God's servant and we take our orders from Him, then He gives us power and authority under Him to defeat the forces of darkness and evil. And we can go forth confidently assured that we already have the victory. So we've looked at the identity of the enemy and we've looked at the identity of the people of God And the third of the four categories into which these 12 questions from 1 Samuel 17 can be placed speaks to the motive of David or the people of God that have decided to do the fighting. Goliath himself said, why do you come out and line up for battle? He was talking to the whole army when he said that. That's really a good thing for us to ask ourselves. If we are going to go against the forces of darkness and evil, or say you have decided you really are going to stand up to addiction or depression or discouragement or illness or some other difficult, dark thing in your life. You have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Then David said, what will be done for the man that kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? And they were telling him things like, Well, that person will get to marry the king's daughter, and that person will be tax-exempt for life, and that person will be made very wealthy. Those were all here and now kinds of perks. But the real perk, the real motivating thing behind being the person that killed the giant was having the absolute freedom from that oppression. It was its own reward. And even David's older brother, Jealous Eliab, asked David about motive. He said, why have you come down here? So motive, we need to ask ourselves, Galatians 1.10 says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? There you go again, a question about motive. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be the servant of Christ. He speaks about motive in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, too. Paul says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. Philippians 2, 3. Here we go again with Paul. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Jesus himself speaks to motive in Luke 14:28. He says, "For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it?" And so, we ask ourselves, how bad do I really want this victory? Do I have what it takes inside to stick with the job until it's complete? And am I doing it for the right reasons? So we've talked about the identity of the enemy, and we've talked about the identity of the people of God, and we've talked about motive, the fourth of the four categories into which the 12 questions of this passage can be placed is the surprising opposition by the backslidden church. Isn't it strange that Eliab was so irritated that David was interested in going up against this foe that for 40 days had defied the armies. He said in such a condescending way, With whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? David responded by saying, Now what have I done? Can't I even speak? That would be like saying, Was it not just a harmless question? That is the way another translation reads, Or is there not a cause? And so we see that you can expect that if you decide to make some headway against the forces of darkness, that you're going to be persecuted for it. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And let me tell you, sometimes those that do that appear to be on your own team. Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Same chapter, Matthew 5, same Sermon on the Mount, a few verses forward, verse 44. Jesus said, But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul said to Titus in Titus 2, 7 and 8, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And here we go. We're talking here about opposition. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. In other words, Just go right about your business, living as righteous and good a life as you possibly can. Move forward, fight the foe, and let them say what they will. So the opposition was really of no consequence ultimately because David still defeated the foe and the Lord advanced him as he had always intended. So what is the bottom line for spiritual battles? If we consider these 12 questions in their four categories for 1 Samuel 17, know your enemy, know yourself, examine your motives, expect opposition, and then go win. If this has been a help to you in any way, pass along.